Uh, thanks to everybody for agreeing to have a conversation about sex at 8.30 in the morning. <laughs> On the last day, you were all troopers. Um, and I, and I want to begin um, with a kind of an open question here. Um, how did we learn that sex is an uncomfortable thing to talk about? Um, so actually, before y'all answer, two things. I'm breaking a rule, first of all, sex therapy, which is always ask for permission before um, talking about sexuality. My assumption is that I have your permission to ask you all about sexuality and um, to, to talk about it, but I just wanted to confirm that. I don't want to make the assumption. Do we have permission to have dialogue in here about our sexual uh, stories or sexual narratives? Fantastic. So, um, so today's going to be an experiential kind of workshop, uh, which means that group discussion is going to be a part of this. Um, so this session is being recorded. Uh, it's going to be recorded. It'll be on the Pepperdine site. So um, we're not going to do large group discussions just because I want to respect some of the stories that you all have. Uh, and uh, to respect that, um, to respect not having those um, be on the be on the Pepperdine side. But I'm wondering if we can maybe break into groups of two and three uh, to to answer uh, some of these questions. So um, I want you to first of all, <laughs> my clicker's not on. There we go. Sorry, there's my there's my sexy slide there. Um, <laughs> I want you to first of all. Um, so introduce yourself to someone around you. Who are you? Uh, where are you from? And uh, in two, one or two sentences, what's uncomfortable about talking about sex? So if you'll take a minute to find some people and... Conversations will go for about a minute or two, and then uh, and then continue. So we're going to introduce myself. Uh, I am uh, Jeremiah Gibson. Um, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm also a certified sex therapist, um, um, and I am certified through a group called the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, or ASECT. Um, ASECT is seen as the premier professional organization for uh, for sex therapy for sex research. Um, and and uh, for folks who work with sexuality. Um, I work with couples, uh, primarily uh, religious couples and also couples who have young children um, in Quincy, Massachusetts. Um, I, I live in Boston 
And uh, I'm also the president of the Massachusetts Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. So this stuff is really, really important to me. Um, I'm particularly aware of how uncomfortable sex can be because I grew up in the Church of Christ. Um, I will share a little bit of my own sexual testimony here in a minute. Um, I'm an ACU grad, undergraduate and graduate, and I did my master's at their MFT program. So um, two quick words here about discomfort. First of all, some of the conversations that we're going to have today are going to be uncomfortable. Please embrace that. Um, I do want to make a distinction between comfort and safety real quick. I hope during, I hope during our conversation that you feel a little uncomfortable. Uh, never mind the taboo that our tradition has placed around sexuality. You know, that taboo also exists in the secular world too. The secular world is not particularly good about talking about sex. Sex is vulnerable. We're not only talking about our greatest hopes and dreams and ideals for pleasure, but we're talking about our greatest fears and our greatest insecurities. Discomfort's gonna happen. I do immensely care about your sense of safety, however. Uh, so let's set a few ground rules for our conversation as to how we can protect safety for a minute. Uh, the first thing I'm gonna ask is, would you mind shutting the door? Um, just to, so, so two funny things. How, how you know a therapist is, is, is teaching your class. We're set up in a circle, yeah. facing each yeah. other, and uh, super concerned about confidentiality. So, um, so the second ground rule that I want to set is, um, we say this in the sex therapy world, don't yuck someone's young. So if someone talks about something that's exciting or, 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 or pleasurable or an experience that they have, please don't criticize it. Uh, let that person have their experience. And, and if something does come up to you, and, and it may, Pay attention to the visceral responses that you have during the conversation. Uh, rather than responding out of those emotions, uh, try to be curious with those around you. Um, ask questions, ask open-ended questions, um, and take the opportunity to really learn about the other person's perspective. Um, another one is no means no. Uh, I could do a whole hour on consent, uh, but I'll trim it down to 20 seconds, yikes. Um, if, you don't want, if you say that you don't want to talk about something, we're moving on to the next thing. Uh, and in the conversations that we have, uh, I hope that we can have an explicit agreement uh, that that's something that can be uh, respected during our conversations. Uh, and then the third thing is uh, talk only about your own experience. Uh, try your absolute best not to talk about those other people. Uh, it's, it's really easy to other uh, when we're talking about sexuality. Uh, and, and, and that's one of the ways, as we'll talk about in a bit, that, uh, that, that the power structure around sexuality uh, maintains. Uh, ma maintains its homeostasis. So. Um, so you are the expert of your own experience, not the person sitting next to you. So um, I guess I'm curious, um, what other rules uh, have we left out? What other rules would we like to make a part of our conversation today? Or do these, or do these work? Fantastic. Come on in. She can Excellent. Welcome. Um, so the second observation about discomfort is this kind of equation that I created. The greater the discomfort around a topic, the greater the likelihood of power inequity. So think about the things that we don't like to talk about in this country. Sex, obviously. Non-heterosexuality. Uh, those of you who went to Sally Gary's presentation on Wednesday got a glimpse of how the church can positively participate in LGBTQ conversations. 
uh, race is another example, financial injustice, uh, ecological crises, we could go on. Uh, the church has historically gotten around having these conversations by invoking God as the ultimate source in power. God says sex outside of the marriage is wrong. God says that homosexual relationships are sinful. Conversation over. Um, so uh, I want to present a little bit of a model as to how I'm thinking about this. How many of you know what the Wesleyan quadrilateral is? So the Wesleyan, so a few of you do. Uh, if I butcher this, uh, please let me know. But the, um, so the Wesleyan quadrilateral was developed by John Wesley as a way of looking at theology. Um, and I'm sorry that the picture's a little bit small. Uh, that's a wonderful image that I found, but if I made it any bigger, it would have gotten super pixelated and you couldn't have read the text that way either. Um, so what we, so Wesley suggests that developing strong theological decisions uh, requires that we look at four different areas. Uh, scripture, what, what scripture says, uh, what history says, uh, kind of what are our traditions, what are the precedents, I guess to use a legal term, uh, what is uh, the reason, so, so what does science have to say, that's kind of how we get around that in the 21st century, and then what are our personal experiences. So in the Church of Christ, uh, we usually start this conversation by going outside in. Uh, we start with scripture, uh, what does scripture have to say about something, and then we try to kind of permeate uh, these, these three topics. And, and, and one of the challenges is that uh, it, it can be really hard if you start with Scripture uh, to permeate uh, these three other topics, because of what I just stated a minute ago, that, that um, you, there are times that, that using God says this is, is a display of power, and it shuts down the conversation. So I'm going to try to go uh, today from the inside out. Um, there are other folks who have uh, talked about this theologically. Uh, they, they've said some really, really good things this week. We'll get to some uh, theology. I just bought this thing. My laser is out of control. But um, I wanted to start with, uh, with the history, with the traditional uh, part of this. Um, you know, in our country's history, expectations on sexuality, particularly what not to do, have been largely established by religious folks. So I recognize that it's a bit unfair to talk about a 400-year history in just three minutes. <laughs> Apologize about that, so there's a lot of cherry-picking that went on for this next session, but this section. But let's take a peek at some of the writings and some of the legislation uh, that dictate this. And we'll start, as you see, in the allegedly liberal New England. Um, so in 18, 1815, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote The Scarlet Letter. How many of you read this? I hope that many of you have read this. This was required reading in uh, our high school. Um, so you know that the initial colonies in New England were established by, by, Puritan, by Puritanical immigrants. Uh, not refugees, mind you, immigrants. Uh, folks who rebelled against the Church of England uh, and desired a religion that emphasized righteousness and God's sovereignty. Uh, so, in, um, so for those of you that haven't read it, or just kind of a quick reminder, Hester Prynne is the protagonist. Uh, she has a baby with an unknown father, and as a result, uh, the community finds that, that out, and she's forced to wear a scarlet A on her chest. Uh, for the rest of her life. So Hawthorne, come in, uh, explores how a community's exclusion of members, in this case due to moral grounds, has long-lasting implications for folks who practice outside of the moral expectations of the community. Um, Hawthorne talks about gender as, as well, which in 1850 was incredibly ahead of his time for some of his, his um, observations. The father is Arthur Dinsdale, who shocked the minister of Esther's church Dinsdale has the privilege 
both as a male and as a religious leader, to hide his identity. Um, although Hawthorne writes beautifully about the internal torture that Dinsdale experiences. He does eventually identify himself as Pearl, Pearl's the daughter, Pearl's father, but, but he dies quickly afterwards, and, and absolving himself of the experience of societal shame that Hester has to go through. So there's that. Um, isn't this a great picture? <laughs> uh, so let's fast forward 300 years. Um, so in 1919, uh, Congress passed the 18th Amendment, um, uh, making it illegal to manufacture, transport, and sell alcohol. So this picture is of the Kansas Saloon Smashers, uh, which is not just an incredible indie band name, but was a piece of political satire about the life of Carrie Nation. Uh, interestingly, these are all men uh, that are that are dressed up as as women. So there's so there's gender implications with this as well. Um, so Carrie Nation was one of the most influential members of the Temperance Movement, a group of primarily Protestant advocates. Uh, we all know prohibition didn't meet its goals. Uh, drinking continued. Organized crime in bigger cities uh, was introduced, and in the 1920s. Uh, we have our first uh, introduction to a prolonged period of, of sexual freedom and sexual exploration. Uh, the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote, passed in 1920. Uh, women's fashion, for the first time in American history, highlighted the appeal of uh, the, the sex appeal of women. Uh, see the flappers on the screen. Um, one of the first professional books about sex. Uh, we started studying sex in this era as well. It's called uh, Sex Knowledge for Men. Uh, this is a really interesting book, uh, if you ever have the chance to uh, read it. Um, and never mind that a hundred years ago we would find this book and the information quite misogynistic. People were talking about sex. And as has happened in the last hundred years, whenever there are sexual freedoms, there are groups of people, often though not always religious folks, attempting to rein in larger culture in the name of family values and in the name of moral behavior. So for instance, in the Northeast, at the end of the Prohibition, bars were threatened with the loss of license if they served gay folks and sex workers. Uh, we saw this most explicitly in New York City, uh, where Mayor LaGuardia, uh, in the late 30s, began setting the precedent of aggressive policing on gay communities, a process that's uh, continued over the last 80 years um, and continues today even in our um, religious communities. One more quick thing of historical tidbit. Um, abstinence, abstinence only uh, models. Um, so there's three pieces to, of legislation to address. I won't get into all of what they are, but there's the Adolescent Family Life Act of 1981, uh, there's the Abstinence Only Until Marriage Act of 1996, the Community Based Abstinence Education Program established in 2000. Um, so in the 70s, you have the rise of uh, the moral majority in religious, uh, Jerry Falwell, that, that, that group. And Christians became, um, a, a group of Christians, I should say, became much more politically active in uh, specific conservative issues, um, including uh, the, the um, encouragement of abstinence-only legislation. Uh, so uh, this is something that's, that's continued uh, over the last um, 30 years. Um, so in 2004, Henry Waxman, who's a house rep, or was a house rep in California, um, contain, uh, released a statement saying that these uh, programs um, contained misleading information about reproduction, uh, false information about contraceptives, uh, particularly about condoms, 
and uh, seem driven by gender stereotypes, religious concepts, and moral judgments rather than scientific facts. So I want to ask each and your neighbor, and hey, there we go. What information from uh, sex education courses have you had to relearn as an adult? And I wonder if we can take a minute or two to share that with the folks around us. So this map seems to do a pretty good job. Uh, three types of states on this map. This map, by the way, was uh, from data, I believe, in 2013. Um, three types of states. States where abstinence education is required and contraception isn't. States where abstinence education is required alongside contraception. And states that don't stress abstinence education but require conversations about contraception. So notice the teen birth rates tend to be highest in states with abstinence-only education and the absence of requirements of contraception education. Hey, there's my state of Texas. Um, I'm from Texas originally, uh, and I could go on about uh, answering some of the questions of, about sex education. But, uh, so this talks about, of course, teen pregnancy, and the teen pregnancy rates tend to be higher in states uh, where um, you have the, the stars. Uh, and there's, there's a lot of other issues. It looks like it talks about births, not pregnancies. You are correct. You are correct. Thank you. Okay. Births, births per women. Okay. Uh, yes, thank you for, for clarifying that. So, um, which is essentially what abstinence-only models are trying to prevent, right? Which is, which is teen pregnancy, but they, in fact, uh, seem to, the research would suggest, well, um, there, there seems to be a correlation. I'll just leave it at correlation. I, uh, I beg to differ. Uh -huh. um, you're saying that... Um, they're trying to um, prevent um, unplanned births, mm -hmm. um, but I think that 
it's more like they're trying to um, prevent unplanned pregnancies. Yeah. Yes, yes, you were correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah, no, Diana, thank you so much for, uh, for, for those of you listening at home. That's a really important distinction uh, between that Diana is making about uh, unplanned pregnancies and unplanned births. So thank you so much for bringing up that distinction. Yep. question about that. Um, because if, I guess my question is, in theory, if what we're finding is that the abstinence-only, quote-unquote, educational, the, the curriculum, yep. Is very poorly written, outdated, or never not even outdated kind of scientifically, right. but was just always wrong. Yeah. Like, then in theory, if you had it done well and still was abstinence only, the map might not look like that. It's true. It's and true. And so we have, and then again to Diana's point about that we're looking at births, not pregnancies. Right. I just I, I just have to question how valuable is it because this is a kind of. And I, I don't want to be, not, not to be disrespectful, this That's is kind right. of the map that you kind of look like, oh, absence only is horrible. Then when we start digging into what is this map really showing, yep. it doesn't really show us much about the conversation, I'm, I'm afraid. Well, um, you know, I, I, I think that the key here is, you know, if, if, uh, if absence uh, protect, um, education is something that's really valuable for you, you know, I, I, I think that looking at the circle states and seeing kind of the smattering, of, of, of how um, they aren't, um, you, you know, Maine up here doesn't seem to have, be particularly affected by the, the births uh, per 1,000 women. Um, Alabama down here seems to be a little bit more affected. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking about, strictly uh, speaking out against this uh, star topic, right. which is uh, stressing abstinence, uh, but not required to talk about contraceptives, uh, because uh, the lack of sexual uh, information uh, for, for teenagers and for young adults is something that often leads to unplanned pregnancies and, and, and unplanned births, yes. Of the states that don't have any star or circle, does that imply they have no sex education programs? Um, that's a good question. So um, I'm not sure. Okay. I don't know how to, to answer that question. I can only speak for Massachusetts, which is the state that I live in right now. Uh, and, and they have a, a pretty comprehensive uh, sex education program, but I haven't done research in the other states. I grew up in Idaho, uh -huh. one of the unmarked states yep. oh, shoot, that sorry. had, uh, we had different levels of sex education Interesting. you could opt into. There was three levels, so the, in, in high school. Yeah. So the first level was like, penises don't exist, like don't have sex. <laughs> okay. And then the next level was like personal reproduction, but it was gendered. Yeah. So like yeah. girls would be in one and men would be in another. Right. Or boys, I should say. And then then there was a full like togetherness, learning about reproductive system, How contraception. And I don't remember, someone came in at the end and did this like horrific STD slideshow uh -oh. uh, <laughs> at the end, which if you want to be scared into abstinence. <laughs> well, right. But you're absolutely right. It's a fear tactic. Yeah. After a while. No, 100%. I'm yeah. like, ugh, I don't want that. So. Yeah. Right. how power impacts the way that groups of people make decisions 
And again, let's let's talk to the best of our ability, uh, strictly around discourses around sexuality. And the first thing that we notice is that power allows people to establish who's in and who's out. Um, I want to talk about something non-religious for a minute. I'm sure that we could go on for a while about how this works in the world of religion. Um, I spent over a year taking about 150 hours worth of classes, uh, in, which is the equivalent of about a year-long graduate study in uh, sexuality. Uh, so there are directors at ASECT, which is the uh, program that, or the organization I'm a part of, um, folks with high amounts of academic credentials who make decisions over what topics do and don't get included. You know, sex education is yet one of many systems where a variety of people make decisions. Uh, educators, politicians, lobbyists, uh, which I would include uh, nonprofit directors and religious leaders. You know, the fact that I'm giving you this presentation suggests that I have some sort of power and influence over the conversation. Actually, this is one of the reasons that I'm sitting right now rather than standing, is that I want to prevent the, the facade anyway that, that uh, you, you know, that, uh, and, and present myself as someone who's an equal uh, to all of you and to someone who, who wants to listen to uh, the, the stories that you all have. Uh, so I want to ask that you turn to those in your group and answer the following questions. Uh, what is an area in your life that you have influence over something or someone else? And in one or two sentences, how do you decide what or who gets included in your decision making? So, go ahead. Well, I. I try, and this is just my life. It's hard. This isn't, uh, I mean, when we talk about power, uh, particularly I think in liberal conversations, we tend to isolate power to kind of old, rich white people. Uh, and, and, and that's too simplistic of, of, of a definition. The reality is that we all have some sort of power uh, over some people, some thing. Um, and um, 
one of the things then that we have to do as a church is to recognize that and to identify that. Uh, not as, a, as, as an objective fact. Not as a bad thing, not as a good thing, but just as an objective fact. Um, and as we're, uh, the second thing that we're thinking about uh, regarding how does power impact decisions on sexuality is um, power gives folks the ability to establish who's greater than whom. It gives folks the ability to establish a hierarchy. Uh, people are better than. Uh, people are purer than. Uh, people are, are, um, are holier than, smarter than, etc. Uh, so from my perspective, we cannot have a conversation with, about power without mentioning the Stanford Prison Experiment. Does everyone know about this? Stanford Prison Experiment. Uh, so in 1971, Dr. Philip Zimbardo of Stanford wanted to learn more about violence in the prison system to see if brutalities that were being reported were a result of prison guard dispositions uh, or about the prison environment. So he gets 21 students um, to participate in a mock prison. 10 of the students are prisoners, 11 of the students are guards. And uh, the prisoners were arrested without warning, as sometimes happens. Uh, they were booked, which always happens, strip searched, and identified only uh, by ID numbers, which always happens. Um, and then the guards were given, I think they were given nightsticks and I forget what other types of uh, personnel that they were given, but they were allowed to do the strip searching. Um, within a few hours, each of the groups began to fall into their different roles. Uh, the, group, the guards seemed to particularly enjoy their role. Uh, they dished out push-ups as punishments. Uh, they insulted the prisoners. Uh, the prisoners, within 24 hours, took on their roles quickly as well and eventually rebelled against the guards. Uh, so the guards responded violently, and there, if there's a few documentaries about this uh, that, that, um, that describe some of this in greater detail than I am. Within 36 hours, uh, the guards and prisoners had developed a pretty vicious feedback loop. Uh, the more insulting and powerful the guards became, the more submissive the prisoners became, which led to more aggression from the guards, more submission from the prisoners, round and round we go. Um, one prisoner began to develop a brief psychotic episode as a result of this. A few days later, so did another one. Uh, one of the most chilling moments was a guard lining up the prisoners to say that the second prisoner was a bad prisoner. Um, and there is video in the documentary of that scene. Uh, this student uh, was actually given the option of leaving the, the experiment, but chose to stay in prison to prove his worth rather than to leave the experiment. So think again about power. Um, uh, dominant submission um, in, in uh, non-consensual settings. Even Zimbardo recognized the following. It wasn't until much later, there's a quote, hold on, there we go. It wasn't until much later that I realized how far into my prison role I was at that point, that I was thinking like a prison superintendent rather than a research psychologist. Uh, so even Zimbardo, who is uh, allegedly kind of distanced uh, from this research, found himself engaged in the in the power structures. So, uh, tons of ethical research, uh, tons of ethical issues with the research project itself, uh, but also a really important experiment about how easy it is to conform to social roles. Uh, this has ramifications that include power in workplace hierarchies, power in racial conversations, and for our conversation, power in the impact of gender on relationships. So the third thing. Um, Establishing what sin is. And I did something really dangerous, and I put sin in quotes. 
Um, I'm not particularly interested in this uh, room and having kind of a theological conversation about uh, what sin is. I'm thinking about this more from a sociological uh, perspective. Um, perhaps you've heard about the current conversations going on at ACU. Any ACU people in here? Uh, you are. Um, or um, So the conversations at ACU about sexual stewardship, that's the language that's used, or let's be clear, an abstinence-only model for college students. This is such a new perspective, although recent conversations uh, from uh, students at, at the university make the Board of Trustees position more overt. Uh, the recent kerfuffle involves the potential for the firing of LGBTQ student employees if they are involved in an explicit sexual relationship. While this is particularly, particularly problematic uh, from, uh, from the perspective of advocating for, for queer folks, in some ways the Board of Trustees is being consistent regarding their expectations for the sexual relationship of employees. Whether you're gay or straight, don't have sex before marriage. Okay. So they put this uh, statement up on there um, in a document that many of us, at least that I received, I'm not sure how I received that, I'm assuming other ACU grads did too. They say, we affirm the dignity and worth of every person is created in God's image. ACU affirms the full humanity and dignity of all human beings, regardless of the sexual orientation or gender identity. We strive to love and welcome all individuals. The question that arises then is if a higher-up at ACU discovers that two people, be they straight or gay, have sinned, have had sex outside of marriage, how will these folks be treated? Historically, evangelical Christians don't have a great track record at treating sex outside of marriage in kind, compassionate ways, never mind same-sex relationships. So suddenly, and this is according to a few ACU profs that I know, we have a don't-ask-don't-tell policy which further pushes conversations about sex positivity underground. Never mind the poor outcomes that we, we mentioned earlier about the sexual health of, of students in abstinence-only environments. Only, and we only talked about birth rates with teenagers. There's a, there's a lot more uh, that, that we could go into, including the um, impact of sexuality on currently married people. Um, so, so that's number three. Number four, then, is the fourth way of establishing, I'm sorry, of, of how power impacts decisions regarding sexuality is establishing our response to sin. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about John 8 for a minute because this is one of my favorite Jesus stories. Um, the scribes and Pharisees bring a woman caught in adultery to a public place where Jesus is. Now, a few questions we have to ask ourselves. Uh, one, what does adultery mean in this context? Uh, two, what does adultery mean in any context? And the third one, and the obvious question for me is, where's the dude? Mm -hmm. The text says that the Pharisees made her stand before Jesus and the crowd that he was teaching. What physical acts did this woman experience as she was being made to stand? So we remember the story, right? Scribes and Pharisees invoke the law of Moses to suggest that the woman should be put to death. They forget that in the law of Moses that it actually requires that both parties who commit adultery, which Leviticus 20 describes as the wife of another man, um, should, be put to should be put to death. So Jesus is listening to this, and well, listening to this is kind of relative, because he's, he's sitting on the ground, right? And he's, he's drawing in the sand, and the more that the Pharisees ask questions, the more that Jesus doodles. Uh, at some point, Jesus raises his head, and do you remember what he says? Let he who is without sin throw the first stone. 
And then he gets back down to do it. <laughs> and we hear a thud. And another thud. Not just of Jesus dropping the microphone, but of stones dropping to the ground. The Pharisees walk away. And Jesus leans over to the woman and says, Where are they? Has nobody condemned you? Uh, the woman, shocked at the humanity with which she's uh, being treated, says, Nobody. Jesus says, neither do I, go your way, and do not sin again. Jesus, the person who is without sin, has the power and the authority to say, do not sin again. We do not uh, get to play Jesus in this story. Um, so, at least in, 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 that particular, in that particular verse. So, the fifth thing is, um, those not in power are unable to challenge so I mentioned that, to, that the topic is sexual testimony. And um, one of my uh, personal um, initial experiences with sexuality came at a really early age, actually. I was about seven. And my church experimented with small groups. So this is seven-year-old Jeremiah. <coughs> Hello, seven-year-old Jeremiah. Um, so this is early 90s, um, a bit after small groups were beginning to take off in the Church of Christ. Uh, there's five families. My mom and I would go. My dad usually had to work Wednesday nights. For that matter, the fathers and husbands of the other families often couldn't make it either. Uh, they were children, but they were girls. So I was the only male. Uh, so as good Church of Christ people, when it came time to lead songs and prayers, the group turned to the male in the room. This guy. This kid, I might add. As a responsible oldest child, of course I said yes. Uh, even though there were adults far more capable than I was of leading songs and prayers, I learned at a really early age that owning a penis gives me power and privilege. Mm -hmm. Part of my story, then, is when I get involved in things, before long I end up running them. Uh, president of the Massachusetts Marriage and Family Therapy Group, and I directed a worship group at ACU for a few years, I've directed quite a few other pro projects. I could go on. And you could say that I have a lot of leadership skills. And I'd be really flattered if you said that. But the reality is that the pathway to leadership would be much more complicated if I owned a vulva. Mm -hmm. The reality is that leadership was expected of me at an early age and that I couldn't say no. 33 years later, I'm just learning how to. So I want to ask you two questions here. How did you learn that your body has power? And how did you learn that your body does not have power? So... I'm going to be really rude and ask you to take one or two minutes as opposed to like 20 <laughs> and begin kind of delving into this conversation. So, so power meaning that you have the ability to make your own choices for your, for your own body. And not power meaning you don't have the ability to make your choices for your own body. No, oh, I was thinking like power over other people or influence. I guess that was the other You can answer that way too.
So this summer, in light of allegations of sexual misconduct from Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, the situation with uh, Matt Lauer, I'm sorry, with Larry Nasser and the girls in U.S. gymnastics, this doofus, uh, our social media feeds lit up with the hashtag MeToo. So let's talk a bit about the MeToo movement. This is Toronto Burke. Uh, Toronto Burke is the founder of the MeToo movement. Uh, and the following is from her website movement, uh, her website MeTooMovement.org. Um, there's a screenshot of her, because I'm well. In 2006, she established a nonprofit organization that helped survivors of sexual violence, particularly women of color from low wealth communities, find pathways to healing. By bringing vital conversations about sexual violence into the mainstream, we're helping to destigmatize survivors by highlighting the breadth and impact sexual violence has on thousands of women, I put in parentheses and men, and we're helping those who need it to find entry points to healing. We want to lift up, we want to uplift radical community healing as a social justice issue and are committed to disrupting all systems uh, that allow sexual violence to flourish. So I'm wondering if you could, we could take a minute or two to share our emotional responses to what happened uh, this summer uh, with, with Me Too. I want to make one more comment about Me Too, but um, this could be if you feel safe sharing your own Me Too experience uh, or just an observation about the Me Too process last year. So, go ahead. So, I mentioned kind of in my post that 
that it wasn't a solo performance. Not to minimize it, but just to, you know, not make people go, what, you know, um, and, and think, like, what if I fail or whatever. Um, so, fast forward a few weeks and, um, like, you know, things pop up on Facebook because your friend comments on it. You know, something happens on a friend's feed. And, um, my dad had commented on one of his friends. She had basically asked my dog a question um, related to it. And um, I kind of responded like it's a grassroots movement, it's not a political thing, it's um, uh, like dad has said that it was. Launched in 2006, uh, and uh, Toronto Burke uh, worked to uh, develop the stories and create the stories of, of uh, primarily persons of color. And, and please check out the website MeTooMovementMVMT.org. It is an incredibly powerful uh, website with uh, incredibly uh, brave, courageous stories on on, on it. Um, 2006, this was created. 2017, the Me Too movement exploded. So and it exploded. Me, me too in 2006? Yeah, yeah, this website was created in 2006. Right. I've never heard about it until. Exactly. So, so, so let, me answer, let me answer that question. Um, if, uh, with, with a hypothesis, if Tarana Burke is a white woman, if she's a woman with privilege and with power, I guarantee you we're talking about this sooner. Um, but noticing that the, 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 the spark that got us going was Harvey Weinstein, a very powerful executive producer uh, who um, worked uh, pri primarily with, although not solely, with, uh, with white actresses. So um, that's, a, that's a reason. I mean, we could speculate for a lot of other reasons as well. Um, um, and some of them are probably more ob objective, uh, business-related, but uh, let me throw that out there as well. So um, let's get to the title of, of why we're here. How the church can participate in Me Too. And we're already doing this, actually. 
and having uh, some, of the, some of the conversations that we're having. Uh, but I also want to let the great 80s philosopher Cheryl James answer that question. <laughs> oh no, my computer's not turned off. <laughs> there we go. It didn't cue the way that I wanted it to with technology. So I'm gonna get around to it. So there's a million different ways that we could have uh, begin having a conversation about sexuality. My preferred starting point is from is from gender. Uh, in order to talk about sexual health, I think that we have to deconstruct and pull apart some of the negative uh, sexual messages that have been attached to us. And uh, one of the primary ways that that happens is around gender. Uh, several other people have tried to do this this week too, so uh, I'm going to give my shot at giving some definitions real quick, and then we'll go back to questions. Uh, the met so gender, the messages that we receive from society as to how to appropriately enact our given sex. Sex being the anatomical, physiological, and genetic features that distinguishes people based on reproductive tasks. Um, and then for that matter, let me throw out a basic definition for sexuality. Uh, the interactivity of bodies based on uh, biological, psychological, and sociological features. So... Um, for the next few minutes, I'm going to throw a few discussion questions up because I want to give you guys a little bit more time to ask these. I have, oh good, I have four. Um, so the first one is, who are people that taught you how to enact your gender? Second one, when do you remember experiencing desire and or arousal? How were you taught to express it? The third one. How did you learn about what men and women are, quote, supposed to do, unquote, in relationships? And the fourth one, what are things that you wish you learned about sexuality? Uh, so I'm going to give you guys a little bit longer because there's four questions. So maybe let's take about five minutes. Pick one of these uh, and take screenshots of this and, and take this back to, to your church. <laughs> Yeah. 
conversation uh, what if this process might we be able to actively replicate in our churches what will we need in order for us to actively replicate this process in our churches other than more time that's how I wanted to answer that question uh, did I have fourth one on there nope okay so um, yeah I'm wondering um, as, as, as a good parent I want to uh, take some good minute to reflect on our process thank you for um, putting in a reflection time, mm -hmm. Jeremiah, and um, what worked for me is that you're open to me saying, um, but, hmm, and so you're open to me um, pushing back a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And that's healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And when we have these conversations in these churches, and I know this from my experience with my own church, there's going to be pushback. And pushback much more severe, Diana, than the, than the pushback that you uh, gave regarding uh, really me 
needing me to be more scientifically appropriate. So uh, it's really easy here because uh, uh, I'll probably never see this person again. Right, <laughs> right. Uh, is in my church, it's going to be really difficult because you know those people. Yep. They talk a lot, you know, and you've got the guard, and you can't be really honest. Yeah. You know. So this is one of the reasons that I put the the, the safety thing, uh, the safety rules at the very beginning. And another safety rule that I would add is encouraging you uh, to keep the conversations that we had in here between all of us. Uh, closed door policy, what stays in here, what happens in here stays in here. Um, I think that um, the progression of the questions helped at where it's not like the first question you asked was like, have you ever been a victim of sexual assault or right. something? <laughs> right. It was, it, it could be, some of the earlier ones we definitely got pretty deep, but yeah. we could have answered them in a little bit more vague way if we wanted to. Right. Um, so that it may be, it just gives some freedom and kind of a progression of maybe getting deeper and more um, intimate for lack of a better word. Yeah, great. Thank you for that feedback. Other, other feedback and then other questions as well. Thank you for the way you presented it. I really appreciate that. I think uh, for me, I wish that for all of us, we had someone like you in our community to start something like this because of the way it's presented in your education and your own personal testimony. So um, I, I really, uh, you know, with that, I lost my thought. Well, Jeremy can um, be flown in. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the the uh, nature of this. Uh, is so uh, the confidentiality issue, the trust issue within our community, within their churches. It's so impactful yeah. for each one of us that, I mean, giving it an hour, we could talk about this all day. Absolutely. And so I, I would really, for myself, uh, my pastor's young, and uh, just the small conversations that we've had, even as brief as they are, are really going to impact me because uh, for myself, I want to continue to do something that's going to affect not only my community, but the entire, you know, movement. Right. Um, as a woman who has experienced that, sure. I, I'm going that journey with, you know, how can I help others to right. come out on the, the better side, on the more positive side, how to learn that. Because for one reason or another, we went through what we did. And right. God is with us and has been with us and will be And will continue to be with us. I was just going to say very quickly, um, just when you see Me Too, it's very easy to think that, uh, well, it, I need to back up. It is uh, a reaction of, instead of a drive to. Like, as, by that I mean like Me Too is not what generates the sexual abuse or anything. Right. It is a reaction that somebody like, well, nothing else is happening, so we need to do this. And as followers of Jesus, I mean, that I think that's a very powerful, freeing response to be able to say, like, we can partner with people who want to have a healthy reaction to, instead of you know, um, demonizing people mm -hmm. for trying to raise awareness. Mm -hmm. as a yeah. Male, so. Yeah. Um, I I appreciated the the breakup with the discussions, um, and I think kind of going off of that, the the cultural climate we're in causes everyone to to have an opinion that's black or white. Um, on everything, and, and I think in my own experience, like personal um, testimony and vulnerability, like people don't have to choose to agree or disagree with your story. Like it's it's um, it's not a matter of, of choosing a side, really. Right. Um, so I think that that's the 
best way to open up conversations that are difficult is is with if with something people don't have to choose their allegiance on. Yeah. So I like yeah. the way that um, you use questions to um, help us like walk through yeah. discussions that are hard. Yeah. Uh, and, and 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 thank you for saying that. Ideally, this is about a two-hour conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, I work in Pepperdine's Title IX office here, so mm. I work on cases of gender-based violence and discrimination. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you being here and having this conversation. I think what I'm learning now more than ever is that these conversations moving forward need to be shifted to be able to have with our children. Because, yes. Um, I work with 18 and 19 year olds and I can tell that these are these are conversations that they're having for the first time about what consent means. Right, right. And, and can I say 30 seconds about the children piece? We, those of you that have young children, so, so a lot of my work is couples with young children. Uh, we can teach consent to a two year old by teaching them to say please. Um, and by, by not kind of forcing them, no, no, go hug your grandmother. Well, no, you're, 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 you're forcing an, an, an interaction that this kid didn't agree to. Um, but, but those are two kind of quick ways that, that with kids that we can start uh, for, from early. The, the art of please, the art of asking has, has definitely been lost uh, in, this, in this culture. And, and, and I know that you uh, see this uh, with, with college students and I'm sure many of you see this in other populations. Um, I'm 70 years old and my conversation partner is obviously way younger and I think it was very interesting to me that underlying some of the things we talked about, how we learned and the things we knew and the attitudes we had, haven't changed. Right. right. Have not changed. That's an important thing because it's really easy also to make this about old and young. Mm -hmm. and you elderly folks need to get on board. No, 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 no. These, these are generational processes that are repeating themselves. Yeah. So. But, the, but the idea that uh, perhaps the woman is responsible for a lot of these mm -hmm. abuses is still fed to us. Right, right, right. right. So, Jeremiah, is this movement just acknowledging that there's been a violation, or is this not is there a process to help people recover? From that, if they reach out. So let's go to the next slide. And Stephen, you actually uh, blew my cover a little bit. Uh, so, 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 so I do workshops uh, with with groups of people, with with churches, uh, in which we can have extended conversations and thinking about what the next step is. The next step, the next conversation, which is three or four hours from now, uh, of, of this process, is uh, what does sexual health look like. And how do we establish um, sexual health principles uh, that acknowledge the, the humanity, uh, the, the, uh, the autonomy, and also the, the uh, fact that we're created in God's image with each other. So I do workshops in which I talk about this. And then I also do couples retreats with impacts on sexuality. Uh, I have business cards here. Uh, if you want to take one, uh, I put mailing lists on here, but just take a business card. And um, there's my website and then my, uh, my email address. So... Thank you so much. We're running a few minutes over. But, uh...